But it's so good to be able to continue our series on spiritual gifts. Um, I'm going to try and cover quite a lot of material this morning, so we'll go through it quite quickly. Um, some of it might be new or unfamiliar to you, um, but I really encourage you to, to lean in. <coughs> Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at a few different things. We've been looking about the context of spiritual gifts, particularly through the letters of Paul as he's writing to the early church. And, and effectively what Paul is trying to do is trying to describe what he sees happening in the life of the church as it evolves 2,000 years ago and how the gifts are so much part of that. And so we find that um, he uses lots of different metaphors to try and describe that. So Keith and, and Bruno the last few weeks have been talking and they've been using metaphors that we do find in the Bible, like the, the body. Um, Bruno used a really great metaphor the other week about an orchestra and how each different instrument within, within an orchestra plays its part. Some of them might be a wee bit unusual or quirky, but they all have a, a part, a place. Um, and, and so we see that, that and if an orchestra and all the different parts come together really well, it makes a beautiful sound, a beautiful noise that um, you can't experience just with each individual instrument on their own. And I think that was a really helpful kind of metaphor. <coughs> but the other, the other thing that uh, when Keith was speaking last week, he, he touched on this a little bit, is, is the inversion of hierarchy. So we're going to talk about gifts today, and it's really important that we think about that. The, what does the inversion of hierarchy actually mean? Well, it means that you turn something upside down to invert. And hierarchy, we think quite very often about the idea of a triangle. And so in business, we think that the CEO or the boss is at the top, and then everybody else goes down, and the, the further down you find that the less responsibility you have and the less you get paid. Um, that's the way business works. But the church doesn't work that way. Okay, we're not a business. And so maybe you're going to find as we go through here, you'll start to see that actually everything gets turned um, on its head. And one of the, the main reasons why that happens, why the way the church deals with authority and leadership is different, is because Jesus is our model. He is the one that he, we look to. He is the one that we model our lives on. And so <clears throat> as we explore the gifts, we're thinking about how we might be the body of Jesus, the body of Christ on the earth, reflecting his love and his glory, pointing people towards him. And we're caught up in this great story of God's purposes to reconcile everything to himself. So Christianity, therefore, is never just a personal or private thing, but it is a community-changing thing, a town-changing thing, a nation-changing thing. And the Christian faith is personal. We have to take personal responsibility to respond to what Jesus did at the cross. But it's also lived out in public. It's lived out in community and is a witness to the world of the goodness of God. And so... We, we don't just call people to repentance. We call them to repentance and to be involved in the establishment of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that's why these couple of verses aren't on the screen. Um, <clears throat> when Jesus started his earthly ministry, and we read this in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near, or it's at hand. It's within your grasp. Repent 
and believe the good news. Turn around from the direction that you were going and the life that you were living and believe the good news because the kingdom of God is at hand. Not just salvation, although yes, salvation, but not just salvation, the action, actual rule and reign of God as it is in heaven happening on earth. And Jesus actually fleshes this out and provides more clarity in lots of different ways, but I'll just give you one. When he stands up um, just after he has been tested in, in the wilderness, he stands up in the synagogue and he reads the words from the prophet Isaiah in Luke 4, and he says, the spur of the Lord is on me because, and this is his mandate, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the, the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So we see again, Jesus is saying, I'm not just about rescuing people, but we're turning the entire system upside down. Things are going to change. <clears throat> so it's important that the gifts of the Spirit, which are given to the church, are understood in that context. And it's a context of mission, of making Jesus known to the entire world. And so, as we're looking at this today, we're going to talk about a theological concept, which is the divine order of spiritual gifts. So, the way that God has ordered or structured things. And it's really important to say that when we're talking about the gifts, that the idea that there's an ordering is not the same as a hierarchy. It doesn't contradict our idea of mutual submission. Um, but it's about an ordering, a structuring that is clear in Scripture. You see, we're, condi we're conditioned, aren't we, in our kind of Western capitalist society. That we're driven by competitiveness to think, who's at the top? Which are the most important gifts? Which are the gifts that have the most power? And how can I get them? Because success is measured about how you work your way up. And so we can fall into the dodgy territory of thinking that some gifts are more important than others, when actually what we see in Scripture is not that, but rather that there's an order to the gifts to fulfill the mission of God. <clears throat> so if you have a Bible, or it'll be on the screen, you can turn to um, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 27 to 28, and it says this, you're the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church First of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kind of tongues. And so Paul takes us back to this idea that we're the body of Christ, and then he seems to contradict himself by saying that the first apostles, the second, prophets, third, teachers. And again, if we have a Western hierarchical mindset that, that there's somebody at the top somewhere, we think, oh, the apostles are first, they must be the most important. And we see this um, mistake in church when sometimes people are given the title apostle and then they're presented as being more important than everybody else. <clears throat> but it, this is about an ordering. So Paul understands that there's a heavenly ordering of gifts and if the church is to remain true to its apostolic call, so when we say apostolic call, right, what we mean is that the word apostle means sent one. And so we as a church and we as people are sent into the world that the entire church is involved in the apostolic call, which is to go and tell people about 
Jesus. And there are some people who are gifted specifically around this ability to take the good news of Jesus into the world and to figure out how the church does that. In the context of the early church, it was being established and growing and multiplying and going into new territories. And literally what Paul does in, in the likes of 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians is he sees the way the church is being structured and growing and he describes it. And so his experience and revelation from the Holy Spirit gives him the ability to say, well, well first we need apostles and, and, and then we need prophets and then we need teachers. Um, that's the way the church grows. And when it's growing and moving from one territory to the next, this is the skill set that we need to be involved in doing that. And so we believe that all these gifts are equally from God, but certain gifts help to provide shape and, and architecture. So uh, again, you'll hear us use this term, apostolic architecture, right? And so if you're an architect, you're able to see the big plan. You're able to map out what this thing's going to look like, and you can picture it. Now, you'll find that some people are, are better at doing that than others. You go and walk onto a building site, and um, there's maybe some foundations, and some, somebody sprayed some lines somewhere, and an architect will be able to describe to you what that entire building is going to look like and, and what it's going to look like when it's finished. And some of us will look at it and go, I can't see that. And they'll come and stand here and imagine what it's going to look like when you're in this, this house and it's finished. And you're going, I just can't see that. We're just in the middle of a field. But an architect sees the structure and sees things, sees a big picture. So apostolic architecture um, is a really important concept. And so these gifts are not in this order because of importance, but they are in an order because of impact. They're community-orientated rather than person-orientated, and therefore they're important in actually opening up the other gifts um, and helping them. So leaders that operate these, in these gifts are not elevated more than others, but when they steward their gifts humbly, they are effectively able to create the opportunity for everyone else to play their part. And so an architect comes along with a plan and he says, this is the way things are going to be. But who builds a house? The builders, the joiners, the plumbers, the electricians, they all have to take the architect's plan and with him standing here and saying, guys, it'd be really good if you did this and you did this and you did this because then we'll be able to build a house together. And so in some ways, that's what the apostolic gift is about. And so you need it first in, every, in order for everyone else to play their part. Um, it's a little quote from Alan Hirsch, and he said that good apostles are like good farmers. They create the conditions for growth of healthy crops by tilling the soil, replenishing it with nutrients, and removing weeds, scattering seeds, and watering the field. He or she is still open to natural rhythms of nature, which are out of his control. So the farmer is reliant on God for the sun and the rain. The seed itself, if given the right conditions, will flourish in this type of environment and produce good crops. So slightly different metaphor, but again, it's this idea that if you create the, the right circumstances in the field, something's going to grow. Now, to me, pulling weeds out of a field doesn't sound like the kind of CEO of church 
kind of work. It sounds like somebody who has to get their hands dirty in the soil. So through the, the shared and powerful experience of the Spirit, the early church was encouraged to live in the loving tensions, this is a little quote from Roger Ellis, to live in the loving tension that existed between mutuality, interdependence, and anointed leadership. What do those big words mean? So we are in mutual relationship. We're interdependent upon each other, but we recognize under certain circumstances that some people are gifted to lead in certain places and other people are gifted to lead somewhere else. But actually that as we lead when it's appropriate that everybody benefits from that. See, we're all together working for the same goal as opposed to we're all coming against one another to see who's first, who's more important, and who is the boss. But, you know, we live in a society and a culture that's exactly like that. Who's first, who's more important, who's the boss? Your entire childhood in school, it's based on marking you against other people. And so when we come into the church, we say, absolutely not. We're not going to do that. We're not going to pitch each person against one another. We're going to go, you're wonderfully gifted here. You're wonderfully gifted here. You're wonderfully gifted here. How do these gifts intermingle and work together to create the, the body of Christ to bring about his kingdom rule and reign on the earth? Um, <clears throat> so these, these gifts are actually talked about a lot. Paul talks about them in Ephesians where he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the chief, chief cornerstone. Now, Jesus is the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets are the foundation. To me, that doesn't sound particularly glamorous. If I was going to be a, a certain part of a house I don't think I particularly want to be the foundations because guess what gets set on top of you? Everything else. But you know, true leadership is marked and embodied in a Jesus Christ-like way. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the nature of what? A servant. And so the apostles and the prophets and the, these fivefold ministry gifts find themselves at the bottom of the pile helping to lift everybody else up. That's where they find their fulfillment. They're not the MD at the top, the managing director, sorry, another business term, telling everybody else what to do and sitting in their big fancy office with their fancy chair and their fancy view. That's not the way church leadership is at all. Trust me, from experience. And so these gifts of apostle, prophet, and teacher in, in Ephesians, and this is going on to Ephesians 4, we read this, but to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned. Um, that is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does ascended mean? To say, except that he descended into the lower earthly regions. He, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body may be built up 
So Jesus, who descended to the lowest possible place in order to rescue us, ascends to heaven and then gives gifts to the church to go and continue his ministry. What are those gifts but the very expression of who Jesus is? Because Jesus is the chief apostle, the chief prophet, the, the, the chief teacher, the pastor, the evangelist. Actually, within Jesus, we see these gifts operational all of the time. And if Jesus has ascended to heaven and given his gifts and called us to continue to be his body, then we should expect the very same gifts that he operated in, in his earthly ministry, would be active in the church. And there seems to be an ordering to them that actually the apostle, prophet, evangelist, um, pastor, and teacher, that these gifts help to facilitate the release of all of the gifts in the church. Um, Marcus Barth actually goes on to say about Ephesians 4, the constitution of the church, that this is what it really is, that there's a divine pattern um, that Paul has understood that comes from God. Uh, and so sometimes we call that the five-fold ministry. You never guess why it's called the five-fold ministry because there aren't four, there aren't three, but there are five, okay? Jesus is our example of leadership when it comes to the five-fold ministry. So, these gifts are given, and so we, we should expect this of leaders, that their job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ, to promote unity in the faith and growth in the knowledge of Jesus, to promote maturity in the Christ-likeness, to enable people to resist false teachers and the spur of the age, to enable and release the body, to build itself up in love, each doing its work. Right, and, and, and the important thing about this is that it's in order to fill the whole universe with the presence and rule and reign of God. It comes back to that, the kingdom of God moving on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus doesn't want to just fill the church, but the whole universe with his presence. Jesus Christ raised from the dead to rule triumphantly over all, to fill everything with himself. And Paul is connecting God's universal plan for the world with the use of these gifts to help make that happen. And Alan Hurst says about Ephesians 4, there is nothing less than the ministry of Christ expressing itself in and through the body of Christ. Anything less than a fivefold ministry is a misrepresentation of the ministry of Christ and by consequence, leads to a misrepresentation of Christ in the world. And so Jesus' ministry, as we read about in the Gospels, is continuing now through the church. And the extent to which the gifts are released in the church is the extent to which Jesus' ministry continues. But particularly these gifts, which are very often leadership-type gifts, are there to equip the saints for, for work of ministry. They're actually designed to help call out the destiny of others. And we see that modeled in Jesus too. We see that Jesus um, taught and worked with his disciples in order to release his disciples into ministry. So Jesus released the, the 12, his 12 disciples, and then later on we, we see that he releases 72. And we see that then when those guys 
take over at the start of Acts, that they start to release other people into their ministry and into their gifting and to release them geographically as well. That these gifts are catalytic in their nature. And so somebody who is a catalyst is a person that quickly causes change or action in others. So what are these gifts? I'm just moving on. I'm going to do all five. The first one's going to be a bit longer, and then you're going to start to panic. But then I'm going to do the next four a lot quicker, and then you'll be relieved, okay? He hopes. So Ephesians 4 uh, from verse 7 says this again. So, But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave his gifts. Okay, and then in, in verse 10, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ gave himself, gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So Paul proposes that this heavenly architecture God has given to the church takes its form in certain mature sons and daughters of God who have been called to encourage and equip the saints into maturity. Just as a wee side point, the saints is all of you guys. It's interesting that Paul uses that always when he's referring to the people who are the body of Christ, that you are the saints, and we think we're very much not, but that's how God sees you. So these five-fold gifts are active in releasing people into their gifts, but they also lead by example. So they lead by example, and they release other people in as well, because for every one of the fivefold gifts, there are more of those same fivefold gifts in the body of Christ, in the body of the congregation that need to be brought to maturity so that they can also be released out as well. So leadership in the church should never be a bottleneck to other people growing into maturity. Rather, it should facilitate. So people are graced in these different ways, usually have developed as leaders in the church. If they are not natural leaders already, they usually will have received the spiritual gift of leadership, allowing them to lead in the context of their gift. And this is very important. Some people just have natural leadership ability. They can go and lead in business, they can go and lead in, in other parts of society or in, or in sport. But when we're looking at spiritual leadership, we recognize that there is something additional added on that comes through impartation of the Holy Spirit when it comes to leadership. And these types of leadership gifts, they're authenticated locally, recognized by mature spirit-filled leaders, and released into the broader, broader and often trans-local sphere of ministry. So not just one individual church necessarily, but people as they mature in these gifts can be released into other churches and into society in a wider way. So apostle. And so the overall vigor, uh, and I would bracket that with energy and extension of Christianity. So um, there were capital A apostles uh, that we read about in scripture, that we know them as the 12 uh, original disciples who became 12 apostles. Uh, so they were followers of Jesus, disciples, and then they were sent out by Jesus. They became apostles, and Paul also gets added to that as well. 
And so these guys were not talking about this level because these guys could write scripture, what they spoke and their words were, were taken as an authority of scripture. We're talking about a, a similar type of gifting, but not with the, the very same level of authority. And we see that it's not just those 12 as the New Testament is written, as the early church grows, we see that this gift of apostle moves beyond the, those original 12 or 13 um, to others, okay? So I think there's a list of them maybe on your screen, and I'm not really going to go through them. It's just to show you that there was James in Galatians 1, there's Barnabas in Acts 14, there's Silas and Timothy in 1 Thessalonians, um, there's Junius in, in Romans 16. So there, there's a constant pattern in Scripture of this apostolic gift being in operation. And it's, so let me just go through very quickly. It's a pioneering gift of leadership expansion, pushing boundaries, overcoming obstacles. You see, the church was never meant to sit static. It was always meant to grow and expand and evolve and develop. And for it to continue to do that, it needed to have that type of gifting about there. So um, apostles are people who proclaim the kingdom and plant churches. They create layers of foundations uh, to create new opportunities for the gospel to spread in lots of different ways. They're the master builder, the architect type skill. They have a breakthrough mentality because you, unless you have a breakthrough mentality, you'll never go and do something new. You'll never go and think, do you know, we could go over there and start a church. When I first came to plant the church in Portadown, th the same thing was told to me again and again and again. Portadown's a really hard place. Portadown is a really hard place. Portadown's a really hard place. And so I used to just delete that in my head, every single time I heard it, I wasn't interested in what Portadown was or was not, or how difficult it is, or how difficult the people were, because I felt that God called me to go and plant a church, and so I just went and did it anyway, believing if God had called me and equipped me that, that something was going to happen. And so I don't believe that Portadown's a hard place, and I don't believe that the people are really hard, because I believe that God has a different destiny over Portadown than anything that the world will speak over any town or over any location. But you need that breakthrough mentality in the apostolic gifting. People with apostolic gifting also have authority over a field of influence. So they may then oversee one church or multiple churches or a movement of churches or a movement such as 24-7 prayer. Um, I think you see a lot of apostolic gifting in the people who have developed that particular movement. And um, as the gift matures, it's recognized by other people who actually say, listen, we could do with some help. You seem to know and have a gift of understanding how things should be shaped. Could you come and help us? So the gift can be translocal in lots of different ways. So some missionaries have apostolic gifting and they can go to another country and help to structure and release other people into their gifts. But although the apostolic gifting is one which breaks through into new, barrier, new boundaries and new areas and stuff like that. It finds itself in the best way possible, fully set within the context of a local church. And so an apostle is not somebody who has a rogue itinerant ministry who just goes around the world telling everybody else what to do. Okay, it's someone who's based within the context of a local church and who then from that basis of being completely um, founded in their local church 
and having a context in their local church goes out and, and strengthens and encourages uh, other people and other areas. Apostolic gifts are not authenticated by personal prestige or by title or position. So I don't think you'll ever uh, find in our church, for example, that any will ever introduce anybody as apostle, such and such. And if we do, I think we'll despair. Because um, it's not about the title. In fact, you don't want it. Because the life of an apostle is marked by suffering for the gospel and burying the marks of Christ. That doesn't sound particularly cool to me. Um, so that's the apostle, the prophet. Um, and New Testament prophets are very different from Old Testament prophets. We should all be very glad about that for lots of different reasons. But we'll talk about that when we're looking at, at the gift of prophecy um, a bit further on. But they are to maintain the faithfulness to God among the people. They're guardians of the covenant relationship with God, and they bring God's heart to us. And so very often, prophets speak words of encouragement and direction. They reveal God's heart for people. Sometimes that comes in the form of correction or direction. And we need to be okay with that but only when we see that the prophetic gift is again placed within the local body of, ch of the church and comes under particularly apostolic authority. Therefore, it can actually thrive. Again, we are not into the rogue prophet that travels from town to town prophesying and then walking out the door or getting on a plane and disappearing away or off so somewhere else. All of these gifts find their context in the local church, but also at times have extra local um, expressions. So the prophet brings the body into divine focus, understands God's heart and man's reality and speaks into the gap. So a prophet will see the way things should be or the way God would like them to be and see where things are at. And a mature prophet will be able to speak in encouraging ways to lead people towards God or to lead people in the direction that God is leading them. And they will question the status quo but they will do that with the truth of the word of God. And so a prophet's anointing has a seer dimension to it. They help us to hear and see what the Holy Spirit is saying beyond the, the natural and rational. And, and they can also very often understand and see the culture of the times and how it's affecting the church and speak into that as well. Just a wee example, just I have time to give you one example. There's a guy called Agabus uh, that you can ring about, about in Acts 11. And so, for example, he prophesied that there would be a famine in the land. So he's able to see there's something going on here, which is in some ways not directly connected with the church, but will affect um, the church. Very often we see that the apostle and the pro prophet so first apostles and prophets, that they work together, they work hand in hand. Some people have described it like a bow and an arrow. And so the, the prophet will prophesy potentially not just over, over people, but over churches, over church movements, and then potentially even over nations. But the interesting thing about that is that when the apostle and the prophet are working really well together, the apostle will be able to take the prophet's words and figure out what that actually looks like in the body of Christ and, and be part of that discernment 
what's the Lord saying through the prophet or the prophetic person? Because again, we'll look at this further on when we're looking at the gifts. But the prophet can at times come and speak words in, in picture language and metaphors and descriptive terms that you're kind of, you then need to activate the gift of discernment. You then need an apostolic leader to come alongside and say, well, okay, if God is saying that to our church at this time, here's what we need to do. And so the prophet has said, this is what God is saying. And the, the apostle comes along and says, well, if that's what God is saying, here's what we need to do. And so it's very interesting that in nearly all of the gifts, there is a lack because the lack is supposed to be met by another gift in another person, which is why we always have these metaphors in the Bible, like um, a house being built with all the different aspects or the body and, and the way that it works because the gifts find that they're connected to one another. Which is why when you have a rogue prophet wandering around the place, they don't always have a very good balance in terms of the way that they work because they were never designed to just be a rogue prophet on their own. Um, okay, so the next gift is evangelist. An evangelist is a compelling proclaimer of the gospel. And so evangelism is not just about being around and, and just loving people and being nice to them, okay? That is really important. So particularly when it comes to something like our compassion ministry in church, we have a desire to reach people, to show them that God loves them, to help them practically. And that's part of the good news. But the other part of the good news is, is what Jesus has done for them and the fact that they need to respond to that and that is the work of the evangelist, to proclaim the good news of what Jesus did, particularly what he did at the cross, and that how that affects their eternal destiny. And so the gift of evangelism in general refers to the capacity to challenge people through various communication methods to receive the gospel of salvation in Christ so as to cause them to respond in following Jesus. And so... An evangelist is someone who's naturally infectious. They can converse easily with people. They can connect with strangers. They can share the good news naturally. And you don't just wake up one day and be like that. It takes a period of time to grow. And so some people will have a ministry as an evangelist. Others will have a gift of evangelism. But we need people who are dedicated and focused on one thing, just like an evangelist. We have a great guy in, in Lurgan called Dixie, and over the years he's shown that he has this gift of evangelism in him. But we need more of those people, and we need more people to exercise and to practice and lean, lean into the, the gift of evangelism. People who have this gift have an intense concern over people's unsaved state and the fact that they could be eternally unreconciled with God. A mature evangelist is also able to enlist other people in the opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And so a mature evangelist will be able to catalyze other people within the church to come and let's go and tell other people about Jesus too. Let's create environments and opportunities. Let's get out into the street and do that. And if you have that gift, then there's no other way to explain it. But every time you're with people that don't know Jesus, you want to tell them about Jesus. And when you do tell them about Jesus, they want to respond. 
And again, that's something that you maybe see once or twice. But if you do see it once or twice, then you continue to say, Holy Spirit, how can I develop? How can I develop in this gift? You maybe as well feel compelled to pray for people by name who don't know Jesus on a regular basis. So that's some of the markers of an evangelist. The next one is um, shepherd. Uh, and I'm using the word shepherd there deliberately. Um, and that's someone who's nur- who nurtures the spiritual development and formation of the body. And so um, that means that you're all sheep. Okay? Don't be offended. Um, again, it's a metaphor. But we look at the flock, the body of Christ, how they relate to each other, and they're passionate about people being in loving community and being well. The gift of, pa- of, of shepherd, sometimes we call it the gift of pastor. And so when we say the gift of pastor, in this context, we're talking about that shepherd, okay, that pastoral care aspect. In general, we use the term pastor in a slightly unhelpful way, probably more than slightly unhelpful way in church, um, because you think it's a person up at the front, okay? But very often, it's not. Very often, that pastoral gift, pastoral care, is someone who moves throughout the entire body, making sure that everyone is okay and everyone is well. So they communicate God's heart for individuals. They want to personalize and make sure that people are cared for well. Um, and so they will, will do that for people within the body of Christ. And as that gift matures, they're trying to figure out lots of different ways that people can be cared for well in the body of Christ. The larger the church, the more significant the ministry of pastors um, that needs to happen in small communities becomes. So some have argued that actually we need pastors for every 10 families in the church that shepherds can only lead up to 150 people because at that point you, you can't know everybody. So when a church, even on our side, we need multiple people who have the gift of pastoral care, who are seeking to care for the body and make sure everyone is okay. And so that's one of the reasons why we have life groups, because life groups are a pastoral care environment where people who can care for one another and where the leaders of those life groups can use the pastoral gifting to care for the people around them. But there are some people who are gifted to care for the entire body and think about the pastoral well-being of the entire body of Christ. Now, last of all, a teacher. And a teacher's job is to mediate wisdom and understanding. And teachers bring depth and substance to the revelation of God um, within this context. So this gift actually comes um, in some of Paul's writings third on the list. So again, you see, we get caught up in apostles, prophets, pastors, you know, evangelists, teachers. It's teacher like the the least important gift, but yet Paul moves it up to position number three in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. So again, do you see the way our Western mindset automatically thinks? We know which one's higher than the other. Um, so teachers we need to be distinguished from preachers, okay? So preachers will proclaim things but teachers will unpack them and explain them in more depth they're slightly different some people have both giftings in the one person but it's a supernatural ability to explain and apply scriptures 
this is what John Thompson says about it. Many people in a typical church may be professional teachers or instructors in a secular setting, and their skills and abilities can be useful in teaching in a spiritual setting. But the way in which the spiritual gift of teaching differs is in the anointed impact of the communication. It can't be explained by technique or personal charisma alone. This gift, this gift communicates biblical truth that leads to obedience. It supports the lordship of Jesus. It deals with the roots of worldview and motive and is one key vehicle to encourage spiritual living. So it's more than just that you've been educated as a teacher of people, uh, the ability to communicate information. There's something that is supernatural in that gift. And so those who have that gift or who are developing in that gift will be enthusiastic learners. They'll have a desire to learn stuff about God, to learn stuff from a theology perspective, but their desire is beyond their own information. But actually, how can I, in learning all this, communicate that and encourage the body of Christ to follow Jesus more closely. Someone with the gift of teaching knows they need to fill themselves with scripture in order to deliver um, what they have learned. And interestingly, pastor and teacher very often go hand in hand. And so um, some people would argue when you look at the original Greek that rather than there being a five-fold ministry, there's actually a four-fold ministry and that pastor, teacher go together. And, and I think that that's, that's really important because somebody that just teaches really, really well but doesn't think about and care about the people in their congregation is, is, is I don't think we're going to get the best form of teaching if that happens. That there has to be a pastoral heart behind the person teaching. How do we follow Jesus? How do we understand scripture? They're looking at the people in their congregation and thinking, how can I help you where you're at right now to live more fully in the knowledge of who God is? So just to summarize, that... Um, a couple of things. So with the apostolic, the core question is, are we leading the people of God into their destiny and calling them to fulfill the Great Commission? For the prophet, the core question is, are the people of God hearing his voice and responding properly? For the evangelist, the core question is, are new people entering the kingdom of God? For the pastor, the core question is, are the people of God receiving, nurture, and care. And for the teacher, the core question is, are the people of God immersing themselves in Scripture and obeying it? And you can see that if all of those things come together and work really well together, the church is going to be a better place for people to grow and develop. But it's also going to be a more movemental place, which is basically saying we are called to reach out to those who don't yet know Jesus, to welcome them in, to see them come to faith, to see them understand their God-given identity, and to thrive in every way, in every aspect of life, and go again and reach more people that don't know Jesus, and that we will continue to move in that direction to see God's kingdom come. So, I'm going to, I was going to do, but I don't have time, a couple of metaphors, but I'll just do one, which is a house. So we've got a house. There we go. So these gifts enable, when you think about a house and the way that it's built, you have a water system, 
a plumbing system, you have electrical system, you have the walls, you have the insulation, you have the roof. And all these things have to come together and they all require different skills. You need a joiner, you need a bricklayer, you need a plumber, you need an electrician to put a house together to make a really good place to live. And when, it's when it comes down to it, these five-fold gifts are about establishing and building a really healthy body of Christ, a bit like a really healthy house where these gifts are at the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone of the building, and we all get to play our part. And having these gifts in maturity in the body of Christ means that these mature gifts are looking at everyone in the congregation and thinking, how can we all mature into the gifts that God has for us? So just as the band are coming up, you might be thinking, well, I don't have any of those gifts. That's okay. I would love for you to think about how those gifts are really important in the body of Christ. But you might be thinking, you know, I have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. How can I mature in these gifts? Not everybody is going to like spend most of their time being that apostolic gift in the congregation. Not everybody is going to be a prophet. Not everybody is going to be an evangelist. But you know, the great thing is that we all get, because of the Holy Spirit, we all get to do some of this stuff together. Some people are called to mature to a position where they have to lead with a servant heart in the mode of Jesus to encourage and support the church. And as people grow in that level of maturity, they really need your prayers. The church leadership, the elders need your prayers because it's really difficult. There's a price to be paid. It costs something. And so we should be encouraging and supporting those gifts so that everyone gets to thrive. Why don't we stand and let's worship?